Hello, and welcome to our senior comprehension project. My name is Julian Fernandez, and I'm here with. Wesley Coonley and Michael Kamiski. Today, we are focusing on the opioid epidemic. Um, we chose this as our topic um, because it's a severe problem within the United States and especially within Philadelphia. Some people view Philadelphia as the epicenter um, of the opioid issue in America. Um, and our essential question is, what is the city of Philadelphia's plan moving forward? And what has the city already done to address the opioid epidemic, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic? So before we go into what we've been doing and like to take a dive deep into our research, uh, we just wanted to let you know that we uh, interviewed many people and asked, asking for their experiences with this issue. Uh, we talked with doctors, we talked with policymakers, and then and we also talked to people that live in the epicenter and try to uh, work to combat it. And through all of our research, we have come up with a partial solution to this problem. And Philadelphia is uh, one of the most important parts of this ep opioid epidemic because of its proximity to the I-95 corridor, uh, is, what, is what one of the people that we interviewed said. Um, so it's easy access to major cities across the East Coast, and that's where a lot of these opioids go to. That's what uh, Steve Grosswald spoke to us about, and his goal is to what he is all about is ending hunger by, and by uh, July fourth, twenty twenty six. Yeah, uh, listening to the Steve Grosswald talk, and there were some technical difficulties, so Sharon kind of passed on this message of like one of the also major problems is as they push out the opioid epidemic, then that just leads to more problems of homelessness healthcare and food and after they're clean they still have nowhere to go which can lead back to opioid addiction yeah and that kind of plays into you know how we're dealing with the pandemic itself um you know a lot of people have been isolated in fact one video that we looked at that we watched was um by vice and kansas cafferty he's the chairman of nadc and a clinical director at aton center he said, this is an illness that thrives on isolation. So obviously we all were cooped up in our houses alone for months on end. Um, and a lot of these people who were, you know, going to these uh, community groups with people who suffered from opioid addictions, they were not able to go to these groups. And when it moved online, a lot of people stopped going to those meetings. So they were, only, they were isolated. So a lot of people who were sober for the longest time, they relapsed and we're struggling with uh, addiction once again. During yeah, the there's obviously a medical aspect of this issue, but definitely a psychological um, aspect. And we've seen that through the isolation and um, the struggle with, um, you know, the, these, um, these people that have um, this addiction through this pandemic. Yeah, and uh, to second what Danny just said, uh, one of the people that we interviewed was a doctor at Einstein. His name is Dr. Matthew Beam. And um, one of the things that he does is he's like a general doctor, but he really does – He um, his practice is near Kensington. 
and a lot of his patients are dealing with opioid problems. And one of the big things about his practice is that he holds a therapy session in his office. And he said, though, that once the pandemic hit, it was really hard for them to do it online. And because of that, many people relapsed and they became and they went back to opioids. And it shows that being in this, being alone and being just in your head can make it even worse. And yeah, that's the proof of that. And uh, going off of Dr. Beam's interview, we had um, just like his story of how he's seen the opioid epidemic grow, I thought was really interesting. Um, he said it was definitely at its worst a couple of years ago when people would come in looking for prescriptions and like throwing bricks or like threat like threats just for, to get their opioids. And yeah, and he um just he like, made I sure that to really emphasize that it's a very it's up. a compounding issue. It's not just um, the addiction that's the problem. It's um, uh, a source where an outsource of money. So um, it causes poverty because people are constantly trying to get more opioids and they're, they're using, you know, their limited resource of money to, to obtain this. And uh, they're all, it's also taxing on their emotional health. Um, you know, obviously coming into a doctor's office and demanding um, a medicine means that, you know, there's uh, a specific urge that needs to be fulfilled. And it's just um, an aspect of life that it's, it's pulling away from their their um, their normal life and their you know their normal everyday being. Yeah, I think we just kind of have to get into like a little bit about how this opioid epidemic started, um, and it really started from how we try to figure out pain, you know. And I think when we look at pain, we have to see both mental and physical pain. Um, you know, beginning off, opioids were a source to help cancer patients um, with pain. And, you know, cancer can be a very painful process, so opioids were given to them. Um, and then there was the era um, of trying to fix pain. Um, and at the time, opioids were pushed heavily um, to, you know, if you have a back problem, give them opioids. Um, and there was a lot of corruption, you know, within the opioid industry um people paying doctors to push opioids out you know raise money um you know big pharma everyone talks about big pharma and how they're the ones who have caused this national international epidemic um where you know you have things like percocets um you know fentanyl um and other such you know um, opioids you know and how most of the time it doesn't start off with someone like doing heroin. It begins with a doctor's visit, you know? And I think that's, that sort of connects to how anyone can be affected by this. You know, it could really be your mother, your father, your brother, your grandma. It could be anyone um, because they can get hooked on the opioids if they aren't, like, watched when doing when taking opioids and are overprescribed um, either by a doctor who's just not realizing it or, you know, a pill farm where it's a doctor who's in it for corrupt reasons, wants money and just gives out pills. Um, and that's why people have to, you know, watch out because it really can affect anyone. And, you know, there are statistics that prove that certain groups are affected by it a little bit more. Um, as you see, minorities usually have less um, access to insurance and those things. Um, so they are less likely to get treatment um, for recovery. 
Um, but you know, opioids, it's not really a race thing when it comes to opioids affecting people, you know, it affects everyone, you know, especially in white, it affects a lot of white communities as well, white poor communities. Um, so yeah. if anyone wants to hop in and talk a little bit about, you know, yeah. So opioids we talked about how like it could be anybody, uh, like it could be parents, grandparents, anybody. So, I mean, I'm wondering if you guys, if you guys are comfortable to speak, if you guys have any, uh, personal connections to this epidemic. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I kind of like this topic we chose because I do have like a personal connection to the opioid epidemic with like family members struggling and getting clean. It's been like, it can like tear apart families that I've seen. And, um, I also want to talk about like a financial point like with Dr. Beam's interview that it can start with just a prescription then they like they want more then it becomes you're paying $50 a day then leading into poverty which will lead to like heroin and use, in recovery which is a um, cheaper drug you know, when they try pills. to cut off um, or they're trying to yeah. you know pinch off your supply um, a lot of people also go to the streets to buy opioids and heroin um, which costs them extra money Yeah, and uh, Julian had a point earlier that they were like over prescribing, and it was an unhealthy practice. And the doctors soon caught on to that. And a few years after it got started, um, it was seen that to give opioids, you had to give a lower dosage, and then you had to uh, make the uh, the patient sign a contract. And even though they tried to push that. And they tried to push another strategy, which was the wean and cut, where you would lessen the dose, what what Danny was just talking about, and then eventually just cut them off. And these people thought that these uh, different suggestions would help, but they really didn't because there are other ways to get these opioids, like heroin on the street, which is a lot cheaper, but it's also a lot more, it's, it's a lot more unsafe and it's more detrimental to these people that need their fix and it's it's a very deep-rooted problem yeah and i think uh, early on they even tried to put time capsules where they would put um you know the whatever the pill is in like a time seal so eventually like over time that seal would deteriorate um and you know people got past that as well you know people would there's a term like called popping seals um where you pop the seal so you can get the immediate effect of it and you know it's how like how deeply it is affected and rooted itself within where it's time where people are like going around strategics to, I guess, stop that use of it in bad ways. Um, yeah. It's how rooted it is in, in society and in people. Yeah. I mean, uh, something that, uh, yeah, something that we haven't quite talked Josh. about yet is, you know, how the city of Philadelphia or just government in general has been dealing with this. I mean, uh, as we saw in like the 80s and 90s with the drug war, uh, how that devastated communities, mainly of color. But with the opioid epidemic, there hasn't been um, like quite the response. So I don't think the government is making the same mistake that they did back in the 90s. Um, and when we talk to someone who's in the policymaking area, uh, she actually works at the DA's office. Um, she said that she wasn't quite pleased with how the city is dealing with this. Uh, epidemic of opioids 
Uh, she wasn't she wasn't happy with the response to it. And I don't know if you guys have any like ideas about how we can combat this and get people better. Yeah, through the the city, for, through the de- perspective of lawmaking, um, I think there's a few things that could be done. Uh, the first is a, is a safe injection site, and that's a really tricky thing to do, though, because no one wants to have that in their community. And yes, it will be better for the city of Philadelphia as a whole, because it ensures that people won't die from infections or get HIV or hepatitis from the needles, but no one wants to have that in their neighborhood, and it's it's a give and a take. And another thing that could be added was uh, not not really criminal, not decriminalization, but less of an enforcement because lots of people just, some people just want to get clean and it's hard for them to do so because they're scared that they will get arrested or charged for drug possession because they just want to be clean again and they want to live a better life, but it's hard to do that in this system. Yeah, and I think I want to talk a little bit about that as well. You know, I feel really strongly um, about decriminalizing for the user. You know, I think for the user to criminalize them and put them in jail um, for either like a mental health or an addiction issue, um, it's just bizarre. You know, putting someone in jail um, for using serves no purpose. You know, they'll probably go back out on the street after jail and continue using. Um, And I think those people need help. And I think we need to create resources. for people to get help. And again, this goes with wealth disparities as well. You know, how many groups can afford those very positive and well-working um, therapies, which help out, you know? Um, I know someone who went to therapy um, and it was one of those, you know, free ones. Um, they have public therapies um, or centers where they help you get, like, get clean. Um, and, and the person said it was horrendous, you know? So I think we need to invest in some of those places and work to decriminalize for the user um i do believe i think in criminalizing um for the seller and the supplier you know for things like heroin and the supplier this includes big pharma and companies who are you you know not keeping or not monitoring the use of it so this includes doctors this includes you know a drug dealer on the street um so like those people um, so that's what I think. I don't know if any of you guys uh, have any other ideas on it, like criminalizing or decriminalizing, you know. Yeah. I, oh, can I just um, add something really quick to what Julian said? Yeah. All right. So uh, with the whole like uh, pharmaceutical companies and there there were actually was – I watched a little bit of a documentary about it and there was a huge – like there was – it was not very good practices uh, between these pharmaceutical companies and these politicians and it was pretty corrupt and they kind of pushed – the opioid epidemic on to America, and it. I just wanted to back that up. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, um, like when we were talking to Doctor Beam, he said, um, for some of these drugs, you do have to like have like a you have to go through a course or something to prescribe it. But at the same time, like a training. By the same way, he's like, it was just an eight hour course, and I can prescribe this like heavy drug to somebody. So I think. Yeah that should be more focused on. No, no, another thing about Julian, I, I agree with you in and, the sense um, that you know, yeah, I don't think it's the best thing to try to incriminalize people after the, I guess their mental health has already deteriorated. I think it's much more important to prevent 
the mental their mental health from ever getting to that point where they're depressed and they're and heavy into drugs and all of that. I feel like it's it's um much more about the preventative measures than the um the persecution of them. And uh, I think that Dr. Bean at the very end was talking about um, behavioral health care um, before they got to that point where where they were abusing opioids and other drugs. And, um, you know, we were thinking about for the future um, if um, it was possible to implement um, behavioral, um, I guess, monitorization and even just de- and like yearly checkups um, to help at least um, decrease this problem. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think preventative is very important. Um, I think also what I was trying to like talk about is like, you know, addiction, you know, that's also a personality, you know, some people have addictive personalities and, you know, some people may not realize they're addicted to something. So they'll be like, you know, they'll run past the amount of times they're supposed to use the drug and they'll just keep using because they think it makes them feel better, but not in like a super intense way. You know, that's still an addiction. Um, so I think they're, they're definitely like, I'm a big supporter of preventative measures when they, whether that comes to like policing um, or reinvesting in communities, especially how being preventative and again, reinvesting in communities yeah. can so help solve Another thing some that of these Dr. Beam uh, talked about was that about 99% of his patients, the people that he sees are on Medicaid. And if you don't know what Medicaid it is, it's just the a federal healthcare program for people who are uh, poor, poor. Uh, and he said, I believe he said that there were some problems um, with Medicaid being able to pay for a lot of these treatments, right? Um, and like like many other programs, there's flaws in it. But you talked about the wealth disparities in um, treatment centers and all that. And this is definitely like when someone treats 99% of their patients who are poor, um, it, it can't be a good outcome because a lot of that money is not like if you think about rich people, they can spend however much money they need to to get clean. But if you're poor, you're lower class, you're not able to be able to pay for all that treatment that's high class, high quality. So a lot of these, a lot of poor people who are already in the hole because they're they're addicted to a lot of these drugs, they have to pay a lot of money to get these drugs. They they can barely afford to uh, go to proper treatment and get clean themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Like- and what's what's also bad about that is that there's like the medicine that Dr. Beam was talking about, it's called Suboxone or also known as buprenorphine. And that's like, that's the future of helping with opioids. And he said that at first it was really hard to give it to his patients because of the insurance companies and they, they weren't able to pay for it. And now it's becoming a little more affordable and a little more accessible and we need to make it more affordable and accessible so these people can get better. Yeah, let's try. Um, I was going to say that personally, I think we should focus on and just like everyone, like government, everything should focus on helping like like um, rehab rather than focusing on law enforcement. Yeah, I don't. Everything. I don't think um, many people believe that criminalizing. Uh, opioid use or any other drug use is a proper way to tackle this problem. We already learned our problem. We already learned our lesson uh, with the drug war. And as you said, Wes, like we need to get some more rehab f- facilities. Um, we need to get these people 
proper help. We need to end the stigma also of uh, drug use and like getting people to ask for help. Because honestly, it's probably stronger. You're probably stronger asking for help than just, you know, burying those those problems, right? So we need to end the stigma and uh, get people into these rehab facilities and particularly state state governments need to start to uh, help. Yeah, I think it's very facilities. important to nurture um, the mental health of all these patients because the doctors can only do so much. There are in-source and outsource patients and um, it's honestly more beneficial for their life to be outsourced. But um, in that, they need to be trusted to do what the doctor tells them and to have the their personal own personal motivation to um, you know cure themselves, and you know that's a, that's a struggle, and um, it you know it's very you know it's very understandable that it's um, hard and sometimes um, it doesn't work out, but um, I think the mental health and um, making sure that they know how important it is that they listen to the doctor and they um, monitor themselves, um, taking these medications to try to um, get them better is. Um, you know, a very important step in all of this. I just want to talk about, um, like, what people are kind of doing as a solution. So, listening to Bill McKinney talk, um, his story was he kind of, he struggled with drugs, like, in his younger ages, college time. But now he's helping. He lives in Kensington, so like he's in like the epicenter of the epidemic. So he helps like addiction with addiction as like helping with affordable food and housing, helping people like um, get back with their evictions so they can still have a house. And I think people like him are really helping this epidemic with without pushing people to homelessness. Yeah, I think that like all the people that we talked with and listened to are all very great people and they're very like honorable and valiant for doing this work. And um, another measure that I think could be taken, like going, uh, I'm going to reference back to the decriminalization of the user for drugs and opioids. Um, when we were talking with uh, Miss Bazlon, who was the lady that works at the DA, um, she cited articles that I later read, uh, which were from, which were about Suffolk County and Boston, and there's also ones about Baltimore and San Francisco. And these were these articles were studies on how decriminalizing the use of drugs and how the city prospers from it. And there was a very, there was a, like a positive correlation there. And I think that we can use some of these, we can use these different, uh, like this, uh, research to help our city and implement that yeah. in our plans. Um, so kind of hopping back to, you know, how COVID-19 really affected these people. Um, the voice video and Dr. Bean both said that they saw, opioid overdoses like skyrocket um, from the beginning of the pandemic. And while that was happening, treatment numbers were going down because everybody was, you know, at home. There was no in-person visits. Um, I guess they weren't deemed essential. Um, and so this is really where telehealth started to take over. And in this Vice video, it said that telehealth medical visits um, really helped doctors a lot in their treatment because 
now they were able to prescribe the meds that their patients need. But before COVID, um, doctors weren't able to, to prescribe medicine online. They were only able to do it uh, in person. So this was like some red tape that was removed so that it would help doctors uh, be able to treat their patients properly. Yeah, you know, when we're talking about Philadelphia, um, 1,214 Philadelphians in 2020 died, um, had, had a drug-related death. Um, and, you know, scientists and people believe that, you know, it was worsened by COVID-19. Um, if you look at more of the statistics, um, overall overdose deaths increased by 9% um, from the year before, um, but the fatal overdoses soared by 29% among Black Philadelphians. Um, even though they decreased by 10% among white Philadelphians. Um, so what does that say? You know, we do, we did say earlier about how it's not super race, raced, uh, excuse me, and it could affect anyone. Um, but here in our city, we see that certain races and ethnicities are affected more by it. And why is that? What other issues play a role into this? And, you know, I think, you know, health insurance, you know, access to care plays a, devast a huge role in this and can have devastating effects. Yeah, uh, in, in my seminar in poverty class that I took with Sharon, uh, one of we, we watched a TED Talk, and it was about like the education system, actually in Philly. And it was, a, it, a part of it was explaining issues. So there's like a normal issue where there's a problem and there's a solution. And it's an easy, like straight line. And then there's situations like the the um, education system and the opioid epidemic, which are very complex problems where there's tons of different reasons why it started, and there's millions of reasons why it's like terrible for our city, and there's so many different possible solutions, but there's no real way that you know that you can stop it, and like hearing what Julian just had to say that. There's so many different factors that just add fuel to the fire in this problem that it's it's a thing that's really hard to prevent and stop. Yeah, I think also another thing that's interesting to talk about, you know, so throughout 2019 um, and in, into the early months of 2020, the unemployment rate among black overdose um, victims was around 30%. But then in the second quarter of 2020, you know, when lockdowns began, um, and like a lot of people were out of work, the rate among black overdose victims jumped to 48%. That's an 18% increase, you know? And what does the lack of jobs have to, when you don't have a job, you know, what is that doing? It evidently shows that if you don't have a job, you're very likely to, you know, struggle with this and overdose, you know? Um, and how do we solve these issues to create jobs within our communities, you know? And to give jobs for those who are struggling with addiction. Um, you know, I read a source that said that whoever or people who are on, you know, routines, opioid addicts who are on routines and have a schedule, have a better time recovering because they're able to, you know, structure themselves and distract themselves from wanting to, you know, do pills, do heroin, do other drugs. Um, so I thought that was an interesting point to say. And, you know, how do we focus on, again, revitalizing certain communities, usually communities of color, communities that are poor. Um you know, give back and help so, them I grow. Mean, like, this kind of connects to our service, right? We cooked a lot of meals for um, people in the DePaul house. And if you don't know what that is, it's just this house for, it provides affordable housing, has health clinics, day centers, um, and it really helps 
a lot of men and women um, just, you know, overcome some problems that they have, um, get out of homelessness, uh, improve their health and their economic well-being. Um, and I'm sure that this, the, that the, the, the DePaul house um, helps a lot of people who have dealt with opioids or drug uh, abuse problems. So like, as we talk about solutions to this huge problem, it's definitely like on a, a granular level, right? We need communities that are to like help others within that community to help um, these people out and get them out of these dark, dark situations that they're in. Um, not the problem cannot always be fixed by one size fits all. Um, and a lot of the times it just has to be done by the community, such as the great work that the DePaul house is doing and, you know, how we cook for a lot of meals for them. Yeah, I think, I think we all can play a role into this. Um, and we all can do things, you know, um, you know, we may not be on the front lines, but there's stuff you can do to help these people. Um, and also one of the most important things you can do is always watch out, you know, be aware, be aware of your friends, um, family, and just random people. Um, you know, I think always being kind as well helps out. Um, and don't be scared to, you know, stick your hand down and try to help someone. Um, and you know, I think also another one of the most important things you can do is educate yourself, you know, educate yourself on the opioid epidemic, um, educate yourself on problems that the city faces, um, and educate friends, you know, have these discussions. These discussions are important to have. Um, have these discussions again with your friends and have these discussions with lawmakers um, because the lawmakers are the ones who are going to make the change. Um, when you're going to the voting booth, you know, go out and vote um, for people who are willing to, you know, step out and help these people and not forget about them and just be like, let them die off, you know. Um, so, you know, go out there, if you're listening to this, educate yourself, you know. Um, and I send my love and condolences to anyone who is affected by this, so. I just want to say that. Yeah, I just want to say, I think one of the easiest solutions can just be education overall, just learning about everything and just ways you can prevent and help. Yeah, and also in specifically lower income areas, having a resource, like having a psychologist or a type of office or whatever that you can go to and seek out help before like if you're contemplating even using them or just having just for each person, having someone to confide in and trust and just people around you are there to support you and you have to use your support system. And it's also would be better if they're built in supports like a a psychologist too. Adding on to what everybody said, you know, friendships are really important in this fight. Um, You know, if, if you have a friend who's been affected by it, just reach out to them. And even if they don't want to talk about it, just be there for them. Be present. Um, and, you know, just maintain that confidence and trust in them and uh, just pray for them. Help them, to get, help them to get out of this hole that they're in and just help them out wherever you can. Yeah, when we asked Dr. Beam, uh, what do you think the solution is to this? What could we do to help? He said, um, you know, the people that are already, you know, uh, you know, all the way deep into the problem. It's very hard for, you know, just teenagers like us to do anything about it right now. Um, the best thing that we can really do is just educate people and um, just be there for people. Um, mental health and therapy is the most important, especially at our age where 
you're still developing, you're still making, you're, not, you're still not sure who you are and you're making decisions um, whether to do this or not. And, you know, just to be there, uh, be a supporting friend, um, you know, educating people, that's the best thing you can do. And, um, you know, yeah. Does anyone else have any last words? All right. Well, thank you all. You know, I think thank you all for listening. And hopefully, you know, you guys go out and educate yourselves. Um, another thing is, you know, you never know who's affected by it. Um, I think sometimes I think more people should probably get Narcan because you never know. Um, Narcan is something that can save lives. Um, and it's something that needs to be put into more hands. And, you know, the hands of, you know, families um, who struggle with it. So thank you again for listening, um, and I hope you enjoyed. Bye.